My dear Miss Austin, I have to thank you very much indeed for giving me one of those prints of the tennis match, as I particularly wanted it. I found it at home when I got down from the city today. Had I known it was on the way this morning when I met you on the boat, I most certainly would have thanked you in person. I'm going to frame all of them and hang them in my room so as to keep those pleasant days fresh in my mind. Hoping to have the good fortune to meet you soon at some of the dances. Believe me, most sincerely yours, Radish J. Carroll. My dear Miss Austin. My dear Miss Austin. My dear Miss Austin. My dear Miss Austin. My dear Miss Lolly. My dear Miss Austin. My dear Miss Austin. My dear Miss Love. Mr. Carroll's mention of meeting Alice Austin at some of the dances ties in with a notable item in Austin's archive. One of her scrapbook's dance cards detailing an evening's music by song, dance style, and with the penciled name of each dance partner, shows Austin dance the Santiago Waltz with Bradish Carroll in early 1889. It is the melody from which this podcast theme music was derived. I'm Pamela Banos, in collaboration with the Alice Austin House Museum. And this is My Dear Alice, a podcast series that explores the life of photographer Alice Austin through her photographs and these letters that were discovered decades after her death. Here we will piece together Austin's story through her extensive photographic legacy, while filling in new details through these rediscovered letters that were sent to her historic home called Clear Comfort. Chapter 2. Among the earliest letters in the boxes that were returned to Clear Comfort, now the Alice Austin House Museum, voices emerge that reveal Alice's athletic and photographic prowess. In particular, her love of tennis crosses over into her photography, and this sometimes helps illustrate the letters. Word of Alice's photographs spread, and not long after she received Bradish Carroll's letter, his opponent in that mixed doubles match inquired about the photos taken on the steps of the ladies' clubhouse that same day. My dear Miss Austin, do you remember the time when you took a group photo of us all at the clubhouse at the end of the open tournaments? I have seen Brad Carroll's, and as they are all so good, wouldn't it be possible for me to buy one? The group where I am sitting down is the particular one I want. You know what I mean? Just send me a line as to how much it will be, and I will send it to you. I hate to trouble you, dear Miss Austin, but if it inconveniences you too much, don't mind about it. Sincerely always, Nellie Jansen. The group photos show an assortment of well-dressed tennis players with a clarity that makes them seem contemporary, except for the women's long skirts and fancy hats and the men's dandyish outfits replete with derbies and canes. Although the men seemed to have changed out of their striped tennis outfits, the women played the matches that Alice photographed that day in the long dresses they're pictured wearing in the group shot. America's first national tennis tournament was held on Staten Island at the Cricket Club in 1880, just a few years after Mary Outerbridge is credited with setting up the first court there with equipment she had brought back with her from Bermuda. 
The game became so popular that multiple tennis clubs had formed throughout the island and the surrounding New York area. Like others on Staten Island who had the space, Alice laid out a tennis court on the north lawn of Clear Comfort, and she photographed groups of her friends with their rackets and in their sporty clothes, the women's which hardly seemed conducive to moving around at all, although the corsets don't appear to be as tight as those that Auntie Min wore. Eventually, women removed their corsets and wore skirts with tight belts and shirtwaists, but which still kept them covered down to their wrists and ankles. Alice got in on the local craze as a young girl, earning the nickname Ping from her Auntie Min. Along with newspaper articles, Alice's penciled notes detail the highlights of her competitive play. She states that she first played in a tournament in 1881 when she was 15. Two years later, she won the mixed doubles championship of the Clifton Ladies Club, which hosted the games. She also mentions that in 1884, she won the champion prize pin for winning three years in a row. And in 1885, she and her mixed doubles partner won both the doubles and singles tournaments at the Clifton Ladies Club. There's a surprisingly thorough record of local sporting and social events in the New York area newspapers of the time. And this is also reflected in Alice's letters. Here's Bessie Strong after that 1885 tournament. My dear Alice, I purposely waited until after your tennis tournament should be over before writing to you, hoping that you would afford me an opportunity for congratulating you on a glorious victory. I have been searching the paper every morning for news of you and was highly delighted when I saw you had beaten two of your opponents. But yesterday's news was not what I wanted to see, and now it is my painful duty to condole with you. Your name has been appearing in print a great deal lately, my dear. So far, I have heard nothing very dreadful of you. A couple years later, Emily Babbitt, wife of Alice's one-time doubles partner, Lieutenant Edwin Babbitt, wrote from Fort Monroe in Virginia. Hurrah for you, my dear Alice. I wish I had been there to see you win the tournament. When I saw by the paper that the finals lay between Miss Williams and you, I fairly trembled knowing what an excellent player she is. But I am delighted that you are the victor, and I congratulate you. You must have played a beautiful game to beat her, and it is a good thing for the club that there was one who could defend at least one prize. I would have hated to have all the prizes taken to the other side of the island. Mr. Babbitt sends all sorts of congratulatory messages, and I send my love. Remember us to your mother, Emily Babbitt. Another newspaper reported, Miss Austin won the all-summer tournament at the Staten Island Ladies Club in 1886. In that year's autumn tournament, Miss Austin and Miss Ward played through to the finals. They had never played together until in the match. It was said that nobody had ever played a prettier or more brilliant match. And so now it's time to introduce Violet Ward. Maria Emily Graham McKnight Ward. Violet was a couple years older than Alice, and she and her younger sister, Carrie Ward, Caroline Costantia Ward, were popular on the Staten Island tennis circuit. Violet and Carrie lived with their widowed father, a Civil War general, in a mansion he had built on a 20-acre estate overlooking the New York Bay and the Narrows. The estate was called Oneada. Violet signed her letters, Oneada, 
Rhymes Hill, Tompkinsville. Their home, Oneata, said to be a Native American word meaning kissed by dawn, was perched on the second highest point on Staten Island. The grounds are now the property of Wagner College, where there are still stunning views over the water towards Brooklyn. Violet was well-known and active, holding roles at the various local women's sports organizations for several years in the mid and late 1880s. The largest, the Ladies' Club for Outdoor Sports, had nearly 200 members at this time. In 1888, the New York Times reported that the National Lawn Tennis Tournament was transferred from Newport, Rhode Island to Staten Island, and the Ladies' Club for Outdoor Sports was excited to be part of the planning. This led to a scuffle in their annual elections. The Times noted that of the two presidential candidates, one represented the old conservative and aristocratic element in Staten Island society, and the other was said to be a more recent arrival, representing the new and progressive or radical element. Violet Ward was the vice presidential candidate on the progressive slate. Several New York newspapers covered the election one later reported, The contest is said to have been exceedingly amusing, all matter of electioneering tactics being resorted to, even to the bringing of infirm and aged voters to the polls in carriages. Miss Violet Ward, who is a well-known tennis expert and is quite famous as having been sunstruck and carried off the field insensible two years ago, has had several fingers in the electioneering pie since its inception. Miss Ward has been looked upon as a candidate for the vice presidency on the radical side. And although she was known to be electioneering very hard, nobody had a very clear idea as to which side her sympathies were with. Yesterday morning, having carefully laid her little trap, Miss Ward fired it by refusing to be considered as a candidate and throwing her votes over to the conservative candidate who was unanimously elected. There are those who say that this step was premeditated from the first and that Miss Ward was nominated in pursuance of a plan not unknown among older and male politicians. We'll see how Violet was inspired and innovative in other ways when we're further along. By the way, Alice was elected as one of seven directors of the Ladies' Club for Outdoor Sports during that notorious event. The voting roster and newspaper articles are pasted into one of her scrapbooks. And so although Alice's possessions were scattered around the time of her 1945 eviction from Clear Comfort, somehow her meticulous scrapbooks remain, albeit also scattered, within the separate collections of the Staten Island Historical Society and the Alice Austin House Museum. The earliest remaining scrapbook, dating from 1881 through 1887, somehow ended up at a library at Harvard University in Massachusetts, and one at the Alice Austin House was returned decades after Austin left, having been found in a second-hand sale. Those summers of 1887 through 1889 were Austin's most celebrated tennis years, in 1887, she was photographed with a group of Staten Island's best women players that was published in Outing magazine. And in 1889, she made it to the finals in single and doubles play, but lost the final rounds in both. Staten Island's tennis season launched in May with the opening of the Ladies Club and closed with tournaments in October. During the summers, 
Alice's friends mostly left the city and island for summer resorts in picturesque areas, never quite leaving tennis behind. In 1888, Alice's friend Lou Alexander wrote from Southampton on Long Island, where she mentions her local Staten Island tennis club and tells of a new club where she's staying. That place remains an exclusive club today, more than 130 years later. White Cottage, Southampton. Dear Alice, I haven't heard whether I have been elected or received by the club over at Livingston. Would you mind finding out? Because I want to pay my dues if I have. There's a splendid club here. The courts are fine. The house itself is quite a large one. I believe they call it the Southampton Casino, as well as the Meadow Clubhouse. This place is too far from the city for a businessman, so the men that are here are mostly from college, or else not in business. The consequence is that they play tennis every day, all day long. Everyone goes down to the club in the morning, and then they all march over to the beach. I won't be able to go to Lake Mahopic next week. Hope you'll have a jolly time and write to me soon. With much love, Lou Alexander. Alice's small, atypical family did not partake in these summer resorts, although her grandfather loved going to the Mohonk Lake Mountain House, still there since 1869, and he called the area the prettiest place in the world. But she was invited along with her friends' families, particularly by her closest friend, Trude Eccleston, who right now was waiting for her to join them at Lake Mahopic. My dear Alice, I'm trying to talk and write at the same time, and I know I need not tell you how hard it is to combine the two. We have had such beastly weather up here since we arrived that we have not been able to do a thing but sit in the piazza. I took a row this morning around the lake. It is so beautiful. There are two beautiful islands, and I expect to spend my mornings reading in some shady nook when it gets dry. We like the house very much indeed. Everything is so clean and new, and the table is excellent. Not much style, but very good, and I think I am in a fair way to get fat, much to my disgust. So you must hurry up and come, and we will play tennis and row until we are skeletons. There is a very nice tennis court here, better than any of the others near. It is not what we would call fine, but it is quite level and right on the lake. There is a great dearth of men up here, and although every place is full of people, they all seem to be old people or very young girls. Now then, I must dress for supper. I just live in my old tennis suit. Write me soon all the news and arrange to come week after next. Now then, farewell and give my love to all my friends with piles for yourself. Alice was enjoying the summer by going to local beaches, or as they said, bathing, and attending parties, like those given by the Clifton Ladies Tennis Club. The summer social activities were booming, and Trude was working to get Alice to join her. In the first place, I'm delighted to think you are really coming up here on Monday, and hope you will not be disappointed in my angelic disposition when the two weeks have passed. We had the jolliest ride yesterday afternoon. I never laughed so hard in all my life. I was the only girl in such singing and yelling I never heard before. We hired a little steam launch and steamed all around the lake in the twilight. There were ten of us, and the boys had their banjos. You had better bring your banjo along. How I envy you bathing. Bring your bathing suit, and we will find some place to go in. The boys bathe every day and say it's delicious. Now then, Alice, as I will see you so soon, I will not write any more. With love for all, Trude. Meanwhile, 
One Staten Island friend wrote to Austin from Fire Island, and another, Effie Ammons, wrote from an island in Maine. The letters were forwarded to Alice, who had already left for Lake Mahopic. August 3, 1888, Cushing's Island, Maine. Dear Alice, how is Lake Mahopic? We're liking Cushing's. Last night we went up to the hotel and danced. I had quite fun dancing with Moral. He's lots of fun, full of the old Nick. But knowing so few fellows, I did not dance very much, and even if I had, probably would not have been asked. Oh dear, I should like to see you so much, you dear old thing. I suppose you're having a glorious time with Trudy, but be sure and don't forget me. If you do, my wrath will be upon you, so beware, old lady. Well now, I shall take pity on you and close this uninteresting letter. I only hope you can get through without yawning. Yours, Effie S. Emmons. Alice had joined Trude and the Eccleston family at Lake Mahopec for nearly the whole month of August, returning straight to her darkroom to develop her glass negatives and print the group photos and others, which of course she sent, to the delight of the recipients. Still there, Trudy wrote back promptly, also describing what Alice had missed since she left. Your prompt letter calls for a speedy reply, so here goes. I think the pictures you sent me to look at are splendid. Mr. Manners saw the tennis groups and wanted me to ask you if you would allow him to pay for one. There was a large ball Saturday night. We all went over in full dress costumes. They threw different colored lights on the dancers, which made a lovely effect. The red light was immensely becoming, but the green and blue were ghastly. They call it phantom dancing. We had a great time watching that Miss Michael. She had a fight with her lover and gave all her dances to another man. She has treated him terribly. It is the talk of the hotel. I would give a good deal to know what the trouble is. The tennis court is swarming with men from morning until night, and unless I walk over with my racket, which by the way is a perfect beauty, with a partner to hold me up, I never get a chance to play at all. Fortunately, they do not use any net anymore. I miss you very much indeed, my dear, and feel quite lonely in my huge room. The people are beginning to go away, and I say good riddance to bad rubbish. Now then, farewell and write soon. The family and friends in general wish to be remembered to you. Much love. Ever your friend, Trudy. The following summer of 1889 repeated tennis and the getaways. Alice spent time at the Bayhead, New Jersey beaches with her Uncle Peter's family before she left for a further vacation spot. Effie Emmons wrote from Keene Valley in the Adirondacks. It is beautiful up here, and I wish you could have come. I know you would have enjoyed it. There are lovely walks, and we have all turned out to be quite good walkers. As for me, I am simply crazy to walk up all the mountains. It is very wild, and the scenery is lovely. We're right up in the mountains. We went out on a straw ride Monday night. I've never went to such a nice one. We stopped at a hotel in the valley and danced. It was simply fine. I'm sure this place is much nicer than the Catskills. I shall try to stay until September. You had better come up and stay with me. But Alice went to Tannersville, in the northern Catskills, with Trudy Eccleston's family. And from the looks of it, she had a blast. In a pretty hilarious group photo of people in costume, including a Dutch maid and what appears to be a man in drag as a Spanish lady, Alice and Trude are dressed as nuns. They seem to be huddling in character, behind a young woman in a low-cut dress, while a man seated on the floor in a military costume looks up at her, resembling an organ grinder monkey. Adding commentary to their nun characters, 
Trudy and Alice's white forehead veils read, Pears Soap, and an ad hung around their necks reads, Good morning, have you used Pears Soap? which was the British product's ubiquitous catchphrase not to be escaped in New York newspapers. The nuns each have a hairbrush dangling from their habit in place of a rosary. An ad in that week's Life magazine stated, In the United States, pear soap has found a place in public favor equal to England, that women who go to a summer resort and fail to take with her as she would a toothbrush or a hairbrush, a supply of pears soap puts up with cheap substitutes until her burning, smarting skin makes life a burden. The catchphrases were, fair white hands, bright clear complexion, soft healthful skin. The day before these costume party shenanigans, Alice's mother wrote the first of three letters that give a glimpse into life at Clear Comfort and their mother-daughter relationship. My precious child, I was so glad to get your letter. I know you forgot the inkstand, but did you forget the package of rosin and pond bottle with alcohol and a screw bottle of pond? I found these standing around. I went to town yesterday and got a yard of silk for your blouse so you will have enough to finish it. I went to a trunk store for a small strap but could not find one. I got two pair more black stockings for you if the others suit you. I hope you have enough summer clothes. You poor child, how did you ever manage to pack in such a hurry? I hope your things were not much crushed. Your grampy is very persistent about taking you to Lake Mohonk. He thinks you would like the rowing on the lake so much. He wants to take you and I for a week if you wish it. I will do so as you choose. It is certainly a beautiful place. The girls go out in the boats with banjos and guitars, and at night there is music and singing all around. They fish off the piazzas, sitting in armchairs. Take care of yourself, my dear baby. Eat and drink all you can. Remember me to Mrs. Eccleston in kind, and I am always your mama. I'm so glad you had a good room. Alice Cornell Austin's letters are all the same length, filling all the space on both sides of two pieces of paper. She often talks of fashion and advises her daughter on proper dress. I'm so sorry that you have not got your lace dress. It might have easily been fixed by tying the flannel with ribbon and putting a jacket of red ruffling in the back. I'm peeved with myself for not having done so. The fact is, you want all kinds of dress when you go away. The letters sometimes read as stream of consciousness as she fills Alice in on local occurrences. There has been a big German picnic and clam bake at the dog breeders today. They have been singing in chorus and cooking incessantly. Fritz was very busy singing and cooking at once. I saw Miss Jimmy Hopkins on the train the other day. She thinks you are a wonderful girl with tennis, photographing, and doing so many things well. I told her about your cooking, which quite surprised her. She is a person of good taste. I may go and see her. And she adds her little asides. Christina went up to Dr. Hasbronk and had eight front teeth pulled out. Her looks are not improved thereby. She often speaks of Katie, their live-in helper, who also tends to the dogs at Clear Comfort. Katie takes great care of the dogs, oils and washes them. She shows no sign of running away. And of course, offers motherly advice, speaks of the weather, and shares local news. I hope you get plenty of sleep and drink milk if it is good there. Do you find any good subjects for the camera? Your grampy is talking all the time about Lake Mohonk. Do not think of hurrying from Catskill for that. 
I do not know if you see any newspapers, so I will enclose a slip about Narragansett tennis. It must have been an exciting game. Have you heard from Effie? I have forwarded all letters that have come from you. Tell me all about yourself when you next write. Every day they ask here. Anything from Law? Your affectionate mama. The third letter arrived at the start of Alice's final week away. Clearly she had not been following the pair's soap regimen, and she had also been a part of an incident involving an errant bull that made it to the local papers. Alice's mother refers to Charlie Barton, who was a fixture in the friendship circle and was also the fellow on the floor, dressed in the military costume in the group photo. My dear little Lolly, I heard of you from Charlie Barton, who came around one evening. He said you had sunburned one of your cheeks and was bathing it with pond for it hurt you. You poor child, how did you manage to get so burnt? We're going on very quietly here, everything just the same. Katie scents the dogs and gets a dreadful lot of fleas off Chico. What she picked off yesterday were the biggest and blackest I had ever seen. There's a thrilling account in the Herald today of a party of which you were one, being attacked by a bull and rescued by Sam Eccleston. Do keep away from fields with cattle in them. I so hate the sight of a bull. Who could have written that account? I have saved it if you do not see it. I hope your shoes arrived safely. They were a mass of green mold when I opened the box. I put them right in the sun. I thought you certainly had them with you. You must arrange to suit yourself about coming home. It seems a long time since I saw my dearest babe, your mama. Alice was gone for three weeks, returning at the end of August, with time to prepare for the fall tennis season. Before she left, she had mailed a letter to a man who she met while at Bayhead when she was staying with her Uncle Peter's family. Her letter reached him at Manhattan's Lawyers Club exactly one month later, and his return letter came from the Players Club, which remains there today. 1889, September 24th. The Players, Gramercy Park. My dear Miss Austin, your note of August 24th has calmly reposed in the dispatch box at the Lawyers Club under the letter G, until today when I came across it in my getting last month's vouchers. It's a rare thing for me to receive a letter there that I seldom look in the box, as all my mail goes either to Flushing or to 10 Wall Street, and I was under the impression that I had given you that address. However, as I have received it at last, no harm has been done, and I acquit you at once of any charge of being an unfaithful correspondent. The main object of this note is to say that I saw Mrs. Nellie Austin at Bayhead on Sunday, and since she is to be in this vicinity the first week in October, I hope we will be able to arrange some kind of wild spree, which will include a trip to the theater and some kind of celebration at the Lawyers Club, if that is agreeable to you. It is just possible that I may have to go to Chicago next week, and I would therefore suggest that in selecting the date for the jaunt, you should select an evening earlier in the week, and I will try to arrange my plans to correspond. Let me hear from you, and please direct your note to 10 Wall Street. Yours sincerely, Henry K. Gilman. Henry Gilman comes across as very proper, and in my opinion, a little stuffy in comparison to Alice, who invited him to her tennis tournament in reply to his letter. This didn't go over very well, as it seems Mr. Gilman took it as a slight that her plans did not allow for his suggestion to arrange some kind of wild spree. My dear Miss Austin, 
Pardon my delay in replying to your note, but I have been so busy that it has been quite out of the question for me to even consider the question of taking a day off, or even an afternoon to see your tennis games. I very much regret that your engagements will not admit of our carrying out the plan suggested. Hoping to see you in the not-too-distant future, I am truly yours, Henry K. Gilman. Alice was in the middle of her most celebrated tennis tournament, winning singles and doubles matches, and over the next few days heading to the final rounds, where she would lose both matches. It was probably just as well that Mr. Gilman was not present. Ten days later, he tried again. October 14th. The Players. 10 Gramercy Park. Sunday evening. My dear Miss Austin, I have just returned from the last visit of the season at Bayhead, which seems to be almost deserted, save for the faithful Austin contingent whose hospitality I have been enjoying. I was sorry not to be able to get to Staten Island for the tennis tournament in which you figured, but I am promising myself the pleasure of calling upon you this week, and, if it is agreeable to you, will devote Wednesday evening to that purpose. Will, if you please, let me hear from you between now and Wednesday, and if any other time will be more acceptable to you, please so indicate. Hoping to see you, I am, as always, sincerely yours, Henry K. Gilman. Will you please give the wandering boy some brief directions for finding the house? We'll be hearing a lot more from Henry K. Gilman. So to conclude the 1880s, here is Bessie Strong, writing on New Year's Eve, the first of her yearly thank you notes to Alice for her Christmas gift that also comes with an inventory report of her own. December 31st, 1889, New Brunswick. My dear Alice, I am indebted to you for the beautiful photographs and should have written you my thanks and appreciation had I not been the victim of Le Grip. It came on while I was on my way to New York the Monday before Christmas, and I could barely get through my lesson and a little shopping I had to do. Came home almost wild with a blinding headache, sore throat, chills, and the worst backache I ever experienced. Was nearly crazy Tuesday night as my back had ached steadily for two days and I could not sleep. Christmas Day was not very hilarious for me as I could not sit up. But I felt better, and my presents were so lovely they cheered me up. Jack Van Dyke came up to dinner and brought me just what I had wanted, a silver button hook. He always manages to get the right thing. Mrs. Macaulay and Rosalie gave me silver bonbonnières and Bessie Palmer a silver hairpin. That was the extent of my silverware. Then I had a Macintosh, two exceedingly pretty table covers, a sofa cushion, cup and saucer, embroidered handkerchief, character sketches from Dickens, beautifully illustrated, a bookmark, lacquer tray, and a few other little things. In all, 20 presents. As you can imagine, it takes me some time to acknowledge all these things as they come from all points of the compass. Have just finished Miss Alcott's Life and Letters and found it charming. One of the most interesting books I've read in a while. Hope you will have a pleasant New Year's Day. My best wishes for all. Mother sends love and a happy new year and hopes with me that we shall see you here before long. Everything is so stupid, though, just now. With much love, as ever yours, Elizabeth.
In the next episode, boy-crazy Trude Eccleston's dalliances seem to lead to Alice Austin's most provocative photographs, for which she is best known today. I'm having two very flourishing flirtations with Dr. Edie and Mr. Gregg. I like the latter better, but I don't let on I do. This episode featured the following voice talent in their order of appearance. Nicholas Kinney, Casey Wangman, Natalie Welber, Ella Stevens, Tom Banos, Madeline Bagnall, Maya Slaughter, Rachel Hilbert, Roy T. Butler, and Benjamin Juris. Sound editor, Kendall Barron. Original music by Nicholas Rosa Palermo and me, Pamela Banos. Other music from Freesound and other public domain and attributed sources. A couple pieces were played by the Edwardian pianist. Links are in the website that accompanies this podcast, where you will also find images and some letters and photographs referred to in each episode.